Hello, and thanks for downloading episode two of This is US Sustainability from the US Sustainability Alliance. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and on this episode, we're going to be lifting the lid on all things animal welfare stateside. Uh, joining me online, I'm thrilled to welcome, firstly from Denver, Colorado, Cheyenne Mackendetha, who is Director, Export Services and Access at the US Meat Export Federation. And then from Leavenworth, Kansas, is Tiffany Lee, Director, Animal Care and Compliance at Clemens Food Group. Uh, now, coming up in this episode, we'll also hear my interview with dairy farmer Tina Hinchley. And uh, trust me, it's a good one. Tina joined us from inside her new barn uh, while stood with some of her cows, and it really is a, a fascinating chat. But before that, let's find out about my two guests here today. Cheyenne, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about the U.S. Meat Export Federation? Yeah, thanks, Russell, and thanks for having me here today. So the U.S. Meat Export Federation, or USMEF, is a trade association that promotes U.S. red meat globally. So we primarily focus on beef, pork, and lamb. We do a little work with bison as well. And we really have two functions, the first of which is marketing. So we work within our international staff through our 18 international offices to figure out the best way to put meat on our international consumers' tables in those markets and it really varies, you know, whether you're in South Africa or Tokyo. So we really rely on our international staff to tell us the best way to do that. And then the second function is market access and exporter services. And what's uh, your role involved there? So I'm on the market access exporter services side. I have a technical background. I grew up in a slaughter plant. My family's been running a small one in the southwestern U.S. since I was seven and that continues to operate today. And I brought that background, studied meat science at university, uh, worked as a food safety and animal welfare auditor for a few years before coming to MEF. So that allows me to be familiar with what happens within our plants, et cetera. And I use that to work with USDA on various market access issues. And we also track the various export requirements for the 80 plus countries that we ship to. And we help communicate that back to our exporters to make sure they're educated so they know what to do to export to these countries and then also facilitate any trade issues they run into like a stuck shipment at a foreign port of entry. And Tiffany, tell us a little bit about Clemens Food Group and the the work that you do there. Yes, Clemens Food Group, uh, we are a pork production company. We have two pork slaughter plants, uh, one in Pennsylvania where our headquarters are located and then uh, one in Coldwater, Michigan. And we also um, have a a vertically integrated uh, hog supply maintained by Country View Family Farms. We have farms in Pennsylvania, Indiana, North Carolina, and a few other states. We also partner with outside suppliers in states like Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, and a few other states to maintain that hog supply that we have. And in my role, uh, I am Director of Animal Care and Compliance. I ensure that all of our supply meets our our high animal welfare standards, biosecurity standards, et cetera. My background, I I grew up on a farm out here in in Leavenworth, Kansas, actually. I'm a veterinarian by by training, practiced for a little while and and came back to um, kind of the ag industry where I really enjoy working with both producers and the slaughter facilities to make sure that we provide, you know, the best, most wholesome product and, and that those hogs are raised, you know, within our standards, our, our strict animal welfare standards. Okay, well, I, I want to start this discussion by just focusing on on the standards and, and what drives them. So, Cheyenne, can you put today's discussion in context by telling us more about the US approach to animal welfare? So our approach is really commercial standards on top of 
regulation. So on the slaughter plant side, we do have regulatory enforcement by the USDA Food Safety Inspection Service or FSIS. You're going to hear many acronyms throughout the recording, but FSIS is our food safety authority for red meat and other products produced here in the U.S. So the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act gives FSIS oversight to ensure proper treatment and humane handling of livestock in our USDA inspected slaughter plants. And if they see something out of line, egregious, they can shut down a plant immediately. So they have strict enforcement authority to do so. However, most of our medium to large slaughter plants go well beyond uh, those regulations by following robust commercial standard requirements required by major food service and retail operators in the U.S., So these standards define very specific metrics for evaluating core criteria like falls, vocalization, stunning effectiveness, et cetera. So by complying with these standards that go above and beyond the regulations, these plants agree to an annual third-party audit. They perform daily and or weekly internal audits to the criteria. And some even have third-party companies watching live animal areas while they're operating, which we call unbiased auditing when folks don't know that they're being looked at. So all of this combines to make our slaughter plant and welfare outcomes, employee practices, and our facilities and our plants really some of the best that you'll see in the world. But assessing this criteria, like is that animal vocalizing because it's in pain or experiencing fear, or is it just a steer talking to another steer, can be really confusing, especially if someone you know is totally new to the auditing or slaughter process. So we have an organization in the U.S. called the Professional Animal Auditor Certification Organization, or PACO. So by getting PACO certified, you're being trained to learn how to assess these very specific criteria that gives plants comfort in knowing that they'll get a third-party auditor who knows what they're looking at, but also is not going to impede the slaughter process or distract the animals in any way. So many plants also send their employees that work in live animal areas of the plant to get certified too. So it's been a really great tool to build consistent evaluators and employees operators within our industry, but now they're expanding to other countries and doing global trainings as well. So on the farm side, when we talk about beef and pork, we have two producer-written commercial programs. The first of which is called the Pork Quality Assurance Plus or PQA Plus program, obviously for pork farmers. And then on the beef side, we have BQA or Beef Quality Assurance. They're a little bit different in how they're written as well as how the sites are assessed. But fundamentally, I mean, they do have very strong animal welfare components and they also cover other things like responsible antimicrobial use, employee safety, environmental considerations, et cetera. So when you look at these commercial producer programs, so we're talking on-farm or on-ranch programs, about 86% of the pork produced in the U.S. comes from PQA plus site-assessed farms, and about 85% of beef produced in the U.S. comes from BQA-certified farmers and ranchers. So the vast majority of what we produce for both domestic and export markets comes from certified operators or operations. So I guess that sort of leads me to my next question, because you're saying 86, 85 percent. So obviously, with it being voluntary, why aren't the other 14, 15 percent of farmers, ranchers, why aren't they taking part? Yeah, that's a good question. And there are a few things that drive certification. So some slaughter plants require animals to come from, say, a PQA plus farm. Farmers and ranchers that are part of producer associations may participate in a live training, a 
you know, a local state or national meeting that they attend. But for the producers that aren't certified, I, I wouldn't say they're not raising their animals in the right way. And I'm sure they're actually doing an excellent job. Um, this training just may not have come across their desk. Or like most ag people, you know, we have 130 cattle on top of our day jobs as well. So anyone in ag knows that there's not enough hours in the day. So it's just maybe something that they haven't taken the time to do online or go to an in-person training. And if you look at the beef side, I mean, our average herd size in the U.S. is about 50 head. So we have thousands of operators to reach with these trainings. So I think the fact that a vast majority of beef and pork in the U.S. comes from certified farms or operators and no one like the government told them they had to do it is really amazing and really goes to show the U.S. focus on continuous improvement through commercial programs versus heavy arm twisting with over-regulation and doing it because someone made me do it. Sure. Um, Tiffany, it'd be great to hear about your experience working for a, a major U.S. meat processor. What guides Clemens' approach to animal welfare? Really, you know, I, I have a technical background as a veterinarian. What I like to see and, and what we strive to do is implement science-based animal welfare standards and, and animal welfare standards that, that farmers understand and, and they are able to implement because they're the right thing to do. You know, we also have certain programs that are for customers and they offer customer solutions to any kind of consumer needs or wants that may arise. But really, you know, our standards are based in science and our standards are based in how the pig is cared for. And that's what I, I strive to maintain here as part of our, our animal welfare program. How do you monitor and maintain the standards? So that starts really in the first conversations that we have with uh, hog suppliers. As Cheyenne mentioned, the PQA plus certification, we require all hog suppliers for our company be PQA plus certified. You know, it does create uh, a little bit of work as far as paper trails and, and you know, follow up and making sure that everybody is in compliance with, with our requirements. But I think it's very, very much worth it. We also audit our own farms frequently. We do internal audits, at least right now, sometimes we're even getting um, you know, four times a year outside suppliers. We also require them to audit themselves and to provide us results of third-party audits. So again, that creates a little bit more work, but we ensure that not only are our farmers dedicated to our hogs, but we know by checking on farm, we know what's happening both on our farms and on outside supplier farms. It's my expectation really to be able to go to a farm any, any time of day or night and show up and have our expectations met at any time, not just through the audit process. So I think you know having those expectations uh, really goes a long way with our suppliers because it helps us build that relationship. You know They understand what we would like to see. We understand how pork production works. And so I think it creates a good partnership and, and we kind of keep ourselves in check and, and suppliers keep us in check and we keep them in check and everybody's on the same page. What happens if you then find that those standards aren't being met? If our standards aren't being met, um, we usually try to work with a producer to you know correct whatever has gone wrong or, or is, is happening. Most of the time, if something doesn't meet our standards, it's not immediate that we we cut ties with a producer we try to work with them you know we have that relationship with them and we want to maintain it but you know if it gets to a point where we've decided that, that it's just not working and, and the standards are consistently not being met 
we may choose to not do business with that particular producer. We're always open to reestablishing relationships, but we want to make sure that our standards are met first and foremost, because we want to make sure those pigs are you know, well cared for and healthy so that we can produce healthy, safe, wholesome food for um, you know, our customers. What are the red flags, though, that concern you? There's a number of ways that you can kind of see if standards are not being met. If I go for a visit, maybe unannounced, and pens are dirty or pigs are dirty or we've got some health issues that may not have been identified before, you know, those are some red flags. You know, consistently scoring low on audits, that's definitely another red flag. And just, you know, maintaining that relationship with the producer. Sometimes we'll prompt some conversations to maybe see what we're missing or, or see if something's going on with the production site that we may not know of. A lot of times it'll be multifactorial. And a lot of times, you know, we, we try to work with producers to, to continually improve. But there are some times where you just see too many red flags. And, and at that point, you have to have a hard discussion on, on whether to uh, cut ties or, or try to continue to improve. Cheyenne, how do you think the way that you do things in the US compares with the approach in the UK and across Europe? Well, we absolutely do have different approaches. Both result in some of the most robust animal welfare practices in the world. So I'm not saying one is better than the other. We just have very different paths to get to these very similar outcomes. So you see very heavy regulation dictated by legislators in the EU versus here in the US commercial standards written by producers and operators, driven by both the market and our desire to continually improve our practices. We do have regulatory oversight, as I mentioned, at our plants under the Humane Slaughter Act, parts of which were written over 100 years ago. So animal care is nothing new to the U.S. by any means. But add to that our very tough commercial standards that our plants have to comply to to sell to these major food service and retail accounts. And you get some of the most robust and strictest animal welfare practices in the world, in my opinion. But again, because these are standards and not legislation, we don't seem to get credit for them, even though we end up with similar or even better outcomes than over-regulated countries. I was a third-party slaughter plant animal welfare auditor for two years before I started working for USMEF. So I take that auditor eye with me all around the world, and I've seen plants in major meat-producing countries around the globe. And I've seen firsthand that our practices here really are the best once you add our combination of that regulation on top of these very robust third-party and commercial standards. Tiffany, um, how about yourself? What's your view on on the US versus the EU approach? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I'll really echo what Cheyenne has said, um, just from my observations, and and they're limited in the EU, I'll I'll be completely honest, but I gave a presentation um, at at a Tanner's meeting a few years ago, and someone from the EU gave a presentation as well, and they were on animal welfare standards. It was amazing to me, just the amount of regulation in the EU versus the United States. And Again, I I think we're very similar in our end goals. Um, Just the way that we get there is a little bit different. Here in the United States, I work with farmers all the time. I grew up on a farm. My dad still farms. And a lot of times when when you try to legislate something or put something into regulations, these farmers are, you know, a little bit, uh, they get a little bristly about it. And, And I think, you know, maybe a little bit rightfully so, just because they're the farmers. They're the ones who actually know how to raise animals, what good management practices are, and that good management leads to good animal welfare. And so, you know, I think it's just kind of a, a different attitude maybe here in the United States. And, and I really enjoy working with farmers and having them help us create our standards because they're really the ones 
who know the animals and how animals respond and what makes, um, you know, a good caretaker out of a person and basically, you know, good, healthy, healthy animals. Okay, well, it's probably a a good time to take a break for a second and, um, you know, hear the interview that I did with dairy farmer Tina Hinchley. She's a great example of animal care in action. She joined me online from Cambridge in Wisconsin, and I started by asking her to give us a quick introduction to her farm. So we are an average-sized dairy farm in Wisconsin. We are uh, milking about 240 head, a little bit less right now just due to COVID. But um, on the grain side of it, we're bigger because we had to diversify to be able to meet the costs that take into place with the dairy industry. So we're farming about 2,300 acres, which equals about 1,000 hectares. We do use about 400 acres or 160 hectares to uh, feed our cattle. The crops that we're growing beyond the dairy cow feed is going to be uh, corn, soybeans, the corn would go to the ethanol plant, and then the soybeans would be sold to the local cooperative. And then we do grow some winter wheat as a cover crop. Right. I've got to say, because obviously a lot of people are just going to be listening to this podcast rather than watching us online. So I'm going to need you to explain exactly where you're speaking to us from, because this is extremely exciting for me to to be watching this. Describe exactly where you're standing at the moment. So I'm inside our new barn that we have. We just uh, finished the completion of it in 2018. It is the size of a United States football field. And in here, we have got uh, our dairy cows that are in an amazing environment. They are uh, eating right behind me. I've got some of our uh, older cows here. And the fans are blowing like crazy. It's warm here in Wisconsin right now. So the fans are in here to cool them down. There's many that are resting on their waterbed mattresses. And uh, there's a whole bunch getting milked right now. We're milking with uh, a robotic system that is developed in the Netherlands. It's the Lely, Lely Robots, and cows are getting milked 24-7 here. This setup that, that you've got, I mean, obviously, it's perfect. And this is why we, we wanted you on, on this episode, because we're focusing on animal welfare. Do you, do you see, you know, a physical difference in, in, in the cows based on the environment that you've got that, you know, set up for them? And also, what's the impact that it has in terms of the amount of dairy products? Absolutely. With the cows being able to be go through the robots as often as they want, up to six times a day, we were able to recognize that when we were just milking twice a day, we were holding them back with them being able to relieve themselves from that pressure of the milk. They're more comfortable. They can get up and eat when they want. And they're social animals. So there's a bunch of these girls, kind of like college students, that hang around together. And if one gets up, she's kind of like the bossy cow. If one gets up and wants to go to the robot, they're all going to get up and they're going to follow her over there. It's very, very social. I know they're happier. I know they're more comfortable. And actually, it's so comfortable in here that I would rather be in the barn most days than actually outside. It, it, it is the best possible environment that we could possibly have afforded for them. I'm not, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in this, but does this therefore help with things like swollen udders? Is that, is that right? Yes. So typically with a swollen udder, a lot of times people will look at our cows and they will see them as if they are on display at the county fairs or World Dairy Expo. They're going to make sure that those udders are 
as expanded as possible so that they can see the utter clef and other stuff. Um, swollen udders that I'm considering that is very important is something to do with mastitis or infection. We definitely have reduced the amount of infections that we have going on with the cows just simply by being able to milk them more often. And with the environment on the waterbed mattresses, there is uh, recycled pallets. And so there's a little bit of wood shaving fluff on top and that's helping them. If they do leak a little bit of milk, which very few of them are leaking now, when we were milking in our other barn, oftentimes before milking, they knew we were coming around to milk and just the excitement of getting milked would often let them uh, relax enough where they would start leaking. And so this, this doesn't happen anymore. The cows are much healthier. And um, with the robot system, we can actually identify which cows are starting to get an infection before it actually happens. So the conductivity report is going to identify which cows need to be focused on. Tell us about some of the other things that you've got there. You've got misters to cool them down. There's the brushes for, for them. Yep. So when the, um, the index on the humidity gets to a point outside, which it's also being checked in the barn here, the misters will turn on automatically. And they're not going to just mist for hours at a time. They're just going to mist for a little bit just to cool these girls down. One of the health issues in cattle in the hot summer, it's a, it's a heat problem. Just like us, when we have heat stroke, cows can have heat stroke too. So it's very, very hard for them to deal with heat. So the, the misters will come on for a little bit, cool the air down, and that is definitely beneficial. And then we also have these Luna brushes. Since the cows have such a long body, there are certain parts of their bodies that they can't itch. They're not like a dog where they can reach their tail head. So we've got these Luna brushes and they can go underneath them. And as soon as they touch it, it spins and it's going to itch those spots that they can't. And that's total cow comfort. Just imagine yourself, you know, that spot on your back that you just can't itch anytime they want. They can go up over there and, and right behind the top of their head is another spot that they can't itch. So that's an amazing benefit for them. Um, just the waterbed mattresses also. As those cows are ruminating for 10 hours a day, those waterbeds are actually cupped up around them. And as they're ruminating, their body is rocking. And with that, it is not rubbing on their, their hocks. Their hocks is the lower part of their leg. Think about the side of your kneecap. On the traditional mattresses, that would rub. Some farms do use sand, and sand is a really good uh, solution, but the sand doesn't work so well with our robots. So um, our solution with the waterbed mattresses is the ultimate that these cows can have. In fact, there's many times when uh, you have a cow that is heavy with calf or she's close to drying off, she simply doesn't want to get up out of her bed. <laughs> I can relate to that too. No, absolutely, yeah. And tell us about the importance of you've got the slats that they're standing on. What? Oh, definitely. So the value of manure is so important to us as farmers that um, we're going to store it. And one of the things that I say when we're hosting farm tours is that what goes in is going to come out. So the cows are eating about 100 pounds of food a day, which is about 45 kilograms. What goes in is going to come out. So that 45 kilograms is going to end up coming out and being stored underneath this floor, which is 12 foot. And I don't know what that is in 
size for metric, but it's double of my height. I'm six foot. Um, and it's going to be stored until the end of November after we've harvested all of our crops. And that nitrogen is so super valuable. We're going to make sure it gets to where it needs to go. And all of that is done through the help of GPS and uh, technology that we have available to us. Well that, well, that leads kind of nicely on, actually, to, to one of the key themes that we're, that we're focusing on in the podcast, which is, you know, how sustainability is aligned to your farm. Can, can you talk us through, you know, what sustainability means for you personally? And also just, to, you know, picking up on, on what you've just talked about there with the, the GPS tech, how you've integrated it in, into, the, into the work that you do. Okay, so sustainability is is on three different levels. So first, I'll, I'll just explain how environmentally it is so very important to us. In the spring when we're planting, we already have the GPS coordinates from the following um, crop year in the computer in the tractor. And the tool that we're using on the planter is called precision planting. And as those seeds are get, getting put into the ground with the planter, also in line is going to be fertilizer. And it's, it's going to be a dry, a dry fertilizer. If that area of the field does not need it, that computer is going to stop it. So we don't over fertilize, but also it's a cost saving measure for us too. And the same thing goes when we're harvesting in the fall, the computer on the combine has a yield monitor and it's color coded. So wherever the soil is or the cornfield is red, that means that there's low yields. And that would probably mean that the soil is out of condition. And the company that comes out and helps us remove the manure from our um, underground pit here has GPS on their field or on their equipment as well. So it will go exactly where it needs to be. So environmentally, we are also in our fields where we're at in Wisconsin, it is not so much rolling hills. It's very much flat, but we still do have soil erosion when we have heavy rains, which we did last week. Oh my gosh, when the storms come through and you're getting several inches of rain really fast, our fields are just enough on a slope that it will end up having a washout. And in those washout areas, we've got conservation strips. And what that is, it's a, it's a strip that is with special grass. Sometimes you could put wildflowers in there too, but it has to be maintained. You cannot let trees or other stuff get in there. So it's a it's a strip that's in between our fields. And a lot of times when you'll see photos of American fields, a lot of times you'll see those strips in there. And sometimes it's like dividing the different crops. But um, when you're on a big slope out West, they can do corn, alfalfa corn, and that alfalfa will hold the um the soil so it doesn't run down into the creeks or the streams and alfalfa is a cover crop but it is also a perennial so that will be there for four years with our conservation strips we're going to end up having um, a perennial grass in there so that would be what we've got with um, our environmental and with that the water that the cows are drinking is what we're drinking and also what our community is drinking. So I'm gonna bring into our community part of this too. We have to be sustainable in our community. We have to be good neighbors. We have to make sure that they know what we're doing. And by hosting farm tours, which I've done for over 25 years, I am letting people come in to see our farm, to see what we're doing, and just inviting people in. 
to be transparent and let them know we have nothing to hide. Everything that we're doing here is the best thing for these animals. And by being able to share what we do, it's an eye-opening experience for many of these people. When they go to the dairy store or the dairy department in their grocery store, they're going to see my face and they're going to see my cows. And maybe instead of just buying one gallon of milk, they'll buy two. Maybe they'll eat two scoops of ice cream. <laughs> and in Wisconsin, we've got over 600 varieties of cheese. Doggone it. There's more than enough for you to buy more than one package. So encouraging people to enjoy and embrace the dairy that, that our cows are producing is very important to us. And then that leads into the economic part of sustainability. And right now, I think we're all on the same playing field all around the world. We have friends that are in Australia. We have friends that are in Wales. It's a tough time right now for us people in the dairy. And COVID was really, really stressful. When the cows are continually producing milk and the, the companies or the co-ops that we ship our milk to are full, sometimes you have to either let cows go or you have to dispose of your milk. So um, COVID did hit us pretty hard, and I, I know it hit the rest of the world as well. But I think as the COVID was taking place, many, many people embraced the fact that dairy is a comfort food. So we know in, in the United States and in Wisconsin in particular, more people use real butter cooking, sour cream, cottage cheese, and of course, ice cream. That's always a good comfort food, especially before bed. And then a lot of cheese was used. But um, we do have to be sustainable. And for us to be able to be sustainable for our dairy end of it, that's why we had to diversify and purchase more cropland to be able to um, make sure that we were able to be profitable every year. Honestly, Tina, listen, just sitting listening to you, it's so inspiring and hearing your passion and, and, oh, and how you've you. aligned. No, on, on, I'm not just saying that, honestly, it's, it's just, I was just sitting, so, sort of sitting back listening to, to all those things that you were just saying, but it's just picking up on the fact that you're doing those, those tours. And I mean, obviously I'm sitting here in, in the UK and, you know, so for those people that don't have the opportunity to go onto the farm and do, do you think enough is done generally to educate those people from outside the farming community to understand everything you know all these things that you're putting in place all the technology that's being used not just on your farm but across u.s farming you know in general and and what goes into the welfare of the animals do you, do you think enough is is being done to educate those people absolutely not i want to say in the united states we are three generations off of the farm so what that means is that my husband's grandfather would have been the last farmer. Well, no, we're continuing farming. In the United States, we are less than 1% of dairy farmers. People in agriculture is 2%. People do not identify where their food is coming from. And it's very, very easy for them to criticize. Many times when we have visitors on our farm, a lot of them see these great big farms and they don't understand that in Wisconsin, 97% are family owned and operated. We are out here working. Some of our farms are, are very big. So they are employing other people that are going to be farmers who are supporting their own families off of these amazing animals. And with that, you know, these girls are the hardest working creatures I know of. They are up and down. They are milking. And, oh, my gosh, they're pooping right now, too. <laughs> That's part of the whole, whole process here, too. These cows 
are, are just so amazing. And um, healthy cows produce a lot of milk. And we have got a lot of healthy cows on our farm and throughout Wisconsin. But there's a lot of high-pressure marketing that goes on on the dairy packaging that is meant to encourage people to spend more money on, on products. For example, a lot of people think that our milk has antibiotics in it. And I know in the UK and the United States and Canada, antibiotics cannot be in anything in the grocery store. And another good, amazing fact that, that is crazy to me, in the United States, they can say that chicken, when you purchase it from the grocery store, is hormone-free. Chickens have never, ever, ever, ever had hormones added. Is it false that they're hormone-free? No, it's not false. It's, it's true, but it's very misleading. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that are financially strapped. And for them to have to make a decision when they go to the grocery store on buying an $8 chicken versus a $3 chicken, a lot of times that's very, very difficult. So um, we need to make sure that everybody understands. It's so important to know that every farmer that is out here, and, and this is a, a good example too, every time a calf is born, all of these cows in here have to have a calf every year. Every calf that is born, somebody, me, my daughter, one of our high school helpers, every single calf is being held or fed with a bottle that is handheld. Every single calf needs to have colostrum. And human beings, us farmers are doing that. And when we're doing that, we're bonding with that calf. And that's a relationship that starts from the moment it's born all the way through its whole milking life. And this is it. These cows know who we are. They trust us. I trust them. And it's an amazing relationship. When people realize how much goes into an animal financially as well, by the time our little baby calf is two years old and she's had her first calf, we've invested $2,000 in each one of these animals. So it's not something that we don't care about. And oftentimes I'll have people say, well, aren't you sad? when you have to sell them where they have to go. And really, it, it is hard, but at the same time, I know that each one of these dairy cows needs to be a high-quality beef product in the end. She has to be healthy. She has to be drug-free. She has to be mobile. And then she is going to get marketed, and then she becomes lean ground beef, ground chuck. She becomes a leather jacket, pharmaceuticals. Oh, my gosh, animal byproducts are in our shampoo and our conditioner. They're in our sugar. So when I explain this to people, a lot of times they're shocked, but once they realize that everything has to be taken care of, and I personally, when I get to the point where I need to be retired from living, I don't want to be put on you know, life support. This is it. I know that when they leave here, they are going to be a purposeful animal that is going to be a good quality beef product. Just out of interest, how do you cope with that because you you've, you refer to them as your girls and there's there's a very personal relationship with them they are i was, ju I was just intrigued how, how how you cope with that when when that time comes but you know what we're in the pen with them we're watching them we're dealing with them and you know what if they don't feel when they don't look good and they don't feel good their ears hang low their whole disposition changes just think think about somebody you know that is is so ill that you know, hmm. my mother just passed on June 13th. We knew her time was coming. And the same thing goes for the cows. We know. And if we do have a death on the farm, all the cows mourn. They know who she is. They're gone at 
they were in their their gang with them. So it is it is emotional. Hmm. But at the same time, I know it's for the best. I know it's for the best for us to have high quality, affordable beef that everybody can have. So these would not be your steak. These would be your ground animals because they're older animals. Hmm. But along with that, you know, every day we have more babies born. And this is it. They're, it's the cycle of life. And the new babies have better genetics than these older girls. And we definitely aren't milking grandpa's cows anymore. <laughs> Not when these girls can produce up to, you know, 11 gallons a day or 42 liters. Grandpa's cows, you would be lucky if they got eight. I was going to ask, actually, I mean, are there any other examples of technology or that you're using that, that improves their welfare, their well-being? Because I know you've got, there's, there's cameras monitoring them, isn't there? You've got... Yes. We've got cam cameras that are monitoring them. And all of this technology comes right to my cell phone, my daughter's cell phone. Right. Who sh she just graduated from UW-Madison last year. And also our breeder has ability to see what's going on on our farm. Our nutritionist can also look into it. Our nutritionist works through the co-op. She's out here every other week. Our breeder comes in every day. On these cows, I don't know if you can see it, there's a collar. And it's an SCR collar. And what the collar is going to do, it's going to monitor her rumination. As these cows are eating, they're going to be uh, ruminating for 10 hours a day. And that jaw movement of them chewing is going to trigger the monitor. And it will make a positive on their graph for each cow when we put it on. We don't have any bulls on the farm. So all of these girls have to be artificially inseminated. So to be able to identify when a cow is ovulating, these collars are the trick. So science and technology and studies have shown that before a cow ovulates, her graph is going to drop because she's going to stop ruminating or slowly go down, but her activity is going to go up. So her normal graph with the high rumination is going to drop down and her activity is going to increase because just like dogs and cats, they're going to start mounting each other. And that up and down activity is going to trigger that. And then we know, okay, today's her day to get married. And in Wisconsin, this sounds kind of funny. Not only are we famous for cheese, but we're also famous for semen. We have the most elite sire farms in the whole world here in Wisconsin. So many of these girls might have the same husband, but there's going to be a lot of variety in here. So many, many men that are going to be uh, married to these girls. And you know what? The next time they have a calf, they might even get a new man next time. This is fantastic. It's been great to to, to chat and, and see. All, all, I was going to say all the, all the cows. I'll say all the girls behind you there. But if, you, if you could sum it up in just kind of like one line for our, our listeners, what, what do you want them to take away from this podcast? That every dairy farmer is a hardworking individual that cares passionately about their animals, the land, and everything that's going on on their farm. And we have to be because this is our future. And not only the future of our family, but the future of agriculture is food for everybody. And that means exports. That means everything going around. Farmers feed the world. And um, we love what we do. Tina, if um, anyone wants to find out more about all the work you're doing there, is there a, do you have a website they can go to? Yes, we do. Um, dairyfarmtours.com. And then if you wanted to just tag me on the front of it, Tina at dairyfarmtours.com, 
that would be right to my inbox. Fantastic. Tina Hinchley, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you, Russ. We're back with Jayan Makandefa of the US Meat Export Federation and Tiffany Lee of Clemens Food Group. Just wrapping up the podcast, is there a final message you'd like to leave our listeners with in regards to sustainability practices in the US? Maybe, Cheyenne, you want to take this first. Yes, thanks. Uh, we've been talking a lot about this as we you know, see major global happenings like the UN Food Systems Summit. We're starting to see what EU Farm to Fork proposes and what that means for third country exporters like ourselves. So this is definitely a pertinent topic here and abroad. And really the U.S. story on sustainability is technology, innovation, and productivity. You know, we get a bad rap, but that productivity and that efficiency really makes us the most sustainable for a lot of the food products that we grow or raise here. Uh, If you look at the beef side, we have the least emissions intensive beef in the world. And that's because of our grain finishing model and our very high quality genetics um, that we use here. So there's a lot of good things that we're doing on the beef and pork side, not only on the environmental side, but when we talk about sustainability, we really try and emphasize both the social and economic uh, pillars as well. So I live in the Great Plains of America here in Northeastern Colorado. And There's many parts of the U.S., especially out here, you just cannot raise crops. And the only way that those communities continue to thrive today is because of cattle. There's sheep and some bison as well, but cattle being the predominant ruminant that we find on the plains today. So, you know, when we talk about rural America thriving, (laughs) it's it's really because of of livestock. So we continue to promote that uh, as well as benefits of having, you know, protein on your plate. Tiffany, final thoughts from you as well. Thanks, Russell. You know, our company is over 100 years old, and one of our core values is stewardship, which I think really goes right along with sustainability, if, if not you know, being the same thing. And it was determined that that was one of our core values before sustainability was even you know, a buzzword and, and you know, things like that. We've been doing this for a long, long time. And the reason that this business has been sustainable is because it sets such high standards, not just for animal welfare, but for everything that we touch, whether that be the environment, whether that be the community, whether that be our producer partners. We make sure that we are able to pass everything on to the next generation, whether that be farming practices, whether that be our business practices, uh, whether that be our natural resources. And I think that that is what has helped at least us from a Clemens standpoint, really survive and thrive throughout you know the last hundred years so sustainability is is not like Cheyenne said just about the environment it's about the community that you work in it's about the people that you work with and I think that as long as we remember that in the future our agricultural practices will remain sustainable that's a great uh, point to finish on thank you so much for um, joining me today that that's actually it for this episode so thanks Cheyenne and, and Tiffany and of course to uh, Tina Hinchley too um, if you want to find out more about the US Sustainability Alliance please do visit the website which is thesustainabilityalliance.us you'll find plenty more information on all the topics we've discussed in this episode and don't forget to subscribe to the series on your favourite podcast app if you've enjoyed the show please do give us a positive rating and review but for now from me Russell Goldsmith thanks for listening and goodbye.